трибунах олеют знамена, Облака под небесни плывут. На зеленом ковре стадиона разноцветные майки цветут. So, hello and welcome to the Russian Football News Podcast. This is Thomas Giles, your host. I'm joined by two of the Russian Football News writers. First of all, I'm going to introduce our great Dane, that is Toka Thilaid. Hello. He's also the chief editor, of course, and we have Andrew Flint over in Tumen. Hey, how are you doing, guys? Yeah, not bad. Okay, anyway, so we're just going to crack on with the European Championships and the recent international friendlies of the Russian Federation national team. So the first result was on Saturday. They played Lithuania at the Adkritia Arena in Moscow, and they beat them 3-0 rather comfortably. Unfortunately for Russia last night, they suffered defeat at the hands of France at the Stade de France. That was 4-2. So just going to come straight to you on this, Toka. What, were you impressed by anything, anybody in particular there in the, the recent friendlies? I think, uh, surprisingly, Alexander Golovin made, uh, made some good some good, some good uh, games. I, I wasn't actually sure he should be included in the squad uh, after all, but I think he he made a nice figure, and I hope I hope Slutsky will reward him with some more games for CSK in the league now. And what about you, Andrew? Yeah, no, I agree. Golovin was uh, a surprise, but his his finish against Lithuania was um, was pure class, was real, excellent really good technique, um, and. I mean, a lot of people have mentioned how Lithuania as an opponent was not perhaps the most valuable opponent, but it probably gave Golovin a little bit of a chance um, to gain a bit of confidence. Um, and even in the start against France, um, you know, the first few passes, he, he didn't look too nervous. He looked up, his, you know, his, his head was clear. Um, I mean, France just were too good in the end. But, um, yeah, I, I agree. Golovin uh, impressed me. Um, as did Smolov in the first game. Um, his versatility, I think, will be very useful in the European Championships this summer. Is there anybody whose selection you'd question, perhaps, there, Toko? I mean, I don't want to berate people, but it's one of those questions that needs to be asked. <laughs> of course. You know, I just finished um, an article about the inclusion of the goalkeeper Gil Hammer yesterday, actually. And I'm not sure it was the right call to include him in the squad. I mean, I think he's one of the better goalkeepers in the league, but I just don't see him playing a role on the national team. He's 30 years old, he's 31 later this year, and Russia have some better, younger goalkeepers coming through the ranks, so I didn't really see the point of including him, especially not three months before the Euro, where Russia needs to perform well. And of course, he is the first player to be capped outside of the Commonwealth Independent States, i.e. the former Soviet Union. He's Birthland of Brazil. Andrew, what about you? Is anybody selection that you'd question? Um, not, not very many, to be honest. Uh, um, although, uh, with, with Guilherme, I, I'm sort of, I'm torn. I'm on a knife edge whether I think he should or should not. He clearly is really passionate about having his, his Russian citizenship. Um, and I don't think at this stage, his age, um, it's purely for caps. He does seem to really love playing um, in this country. So, Almost for that, I'd say, you know, given his performances, he's there or thereabouts as the third keeper. Um, but I, I, I don't have any major complaints otherwise. Um, I, I quite like the changes that Slutsky has made, you know, testing out new players, different options. Um, Ilya Maximov, I'm happy to see him, for example. I think he's a, 
he deserves his chance, fully. Maximov, of course, was in, I think he was 50th in our RFN top 50, wasn't he? But I think he just about snuck in there, but he seemed to do all right in the two games. Um, interestingly, I think the main concern that people have with the Russian national team is the defence. Now, interestingly, the second half against Lithuania, uh, Dmitry Tarasov, of course, quite controversial in recent weeks, but you'll have heard all about that, so we won't get into it, played at centre-half alongside uh, Berezutsky, or was it Ignacio, which I can't remember now. This is a completely slipped my mind. But, Andrew, the defence in general, I'm looking at France as well, with the four goals conceded, really preventable. That'll be a big concern for Slutsky. Um, yeah, I mean, the, Slutsky managing CSKA, is, it was always likely he was going to stick with his, his favourites. Um, I know it's a bit harsh to say favourites. They, they are the best um, the best two, Ignacio and Slutsky. Um, so that's the centre back. I think is actually a very interesting idea because when it comes to tournaments, you want versatile players who could possibly cover more than one position. And obviously, he wouldn't be chosen as a first choice centre back. But if he can do a job for you know, 20, 30 minutes, if um, we want to rest Beretuski or Ignashevich, um, I think it was a worthwhile experiment. Um, I don't think he was specifically a blame for any of the goals against France. Um, but an interesting experiment, and it is something in the long term that will need to be looked at, because Ignashevich is, what, 36 now, but Ituski is 33, I think. Um, I mean, they won't be around forever, so, yeah, I think it's a good Sorry, Andrew, you cut out there, but I, I, I think we'll be able to carry on anyway. Um Toka, I mean, what would you say about the defence there with Suitsky's concerns? Is there anything that you... I mean, it seems a bit late to change it now. Yes, I mean, you can't really get new players involved around the central defence now. And as Andrew said before, Ignashevich and Beresutsky are the best players on the position. But I think the fact that he moves Tarasov down in the central defence also highlights how little he trusts the reserves for that position. I mean, he... He preferred Alexei Beresutsky as the backup for this game, together with Tarasov, instead of, I mean, calling out players who are actually playing regularly in the in the Russian Premier League on that position. And I think that that's a risky move, especially maybe not at, at this moment, but looking forward, it will it will come down uh, come back to hurt them when uh, when they have to play in completely new guys with no experience from the national team whatsoever. Okay, so. Is there any other positions that would concern either of you? I mean, we've highlighted the defence. Is there any other positions that you think that perhaps not up to scratch? I'll just leave that open I mean, and jump in. Yeah. I, I'll, I'll, I'll take this one to start. Um, I, think, I think most of the team is reasonably settled. My personal concern is, I wouldn't say major concern, but is out wide. Because I'm not entirely sure who Slutsky sees as his first choice wide players, um, or exactly how wide he's likely to play them, whether he goes 4-3-3 or 4-2-3-1. Um, um, I, I, I'm pushing for Samedov possibly to play a starting role in at least one or two of the group games, um, because I think he's a simple but effective winger. Um, I'm not sure long-term I, I can find a place for him. Um, so for me, it's the wide positions, um, and at the moment, it looks like possibly Kukorin is in with a good chance of starting out wide on the left, possibly. Um, but again, is that really his best position? I'm I'm not convinced. 
Well, it's interesting that you mentioned the left-hand side because against Lithuania, I mean, I doubt this would happen, but he actually used Mamayev on the left-hand side, sort of cutting inside. So that's quite an interesting move. And what about you, Toker? Any other positions? No, reg regarding the left side, I'd like to add that Denis Cherishev was... I would think he would have started against Lithuania had he not been injured. And it's, it, it's really a shame that he's injured now because he, he's finally receiving the playing time he has, he has needed for so long. And he's doing, as far as I understand, he's doing well in Spain too. So he could actually play a role for, for Russia now. And I believe they need a player like him. So it's, it, it's really a shame that he's injured at the moment. Will it be interesting when he comes back to full fitness? Because, of course, we've just heard in the last sort of half an hour, an hour or so, that Gary Neville's been sacked by Valencia. So it'd be interesting to see where the new coach sees him. Um, yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see if he can go into the team because, as Andrew said, Kukurin is not a natural left winger, and that is his best position. So perhaps we could see him and and Samantha play on the wings as classic wings, and then get a lot of uh, crosses into Chuba central. I don't know. Perhaps it would make sense. I think. Yeah, I I agree with you about Chuba. Um, I think. Um, He's, a, he's one of his players for so long I've wanted to see him just burst out and have a full season where he really gets the grips of his potential. And it, just like you say, the Lithuania game, no risk. Um, he could have you know, had a bit of fun. He could, Slutsky could have said to him, look, show me what you can do. You know, take some players on, get a bit of confidence back. Um, I think it's probably too late for him to get a place in the starting lineup for this summer, but as soon as possible afterwards, I would want to get him, get him involved. Um, yeah, yes, I hope so. Yeah, because Gal Galavin did quite well on that left-hand side. Like I said, that technique for the finish against Lithuania was fantastic. I want to move on, though. Is I've asked you to, to prepare some squads, so we're going to go through them in positional sense rather than doing a whole 23. So first, Toka, I'm going to ask you for your goalkeepers. Who are you taking? I'm talking Euros now. Summer. Yeah, of course. I obviously have Akinfeev as my as my number one. Then I have Lodigan and then Stanislav Kritschuk as the third keeper. Okay, and what about you, Andrew? Uh, I had the same. Um, I had just one small question mark whether uh, Lodigan didn't fill me with confidence against France. Um, it's only one performance, but possibly would I take Guillaume instead of him. But for me, it's not the most important choice because the third keeper is very unlikely to play anyway. So, Akinfeev, obviously, number one. Um, yeah, I mean, so, has... Oh, sorry, Andrew. Yeah, no, that's, that, that's, that's it really. Akinfeev, number one. Lodigin or Klinsjuk, um and Guillaume, for me. I like the idea of bringing a, a younger guy like Kritschuk, who's only 25 to the Euro, so he can sort of get, get a taste of what it's like on the bigger stage and hopefully can help him develop even, even further. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm just going to do a quick plug for the website and for you, Toka. I know that you are doing an article on Guillerme, so readers will be able to check that out at Russian Football News. And that I understand the article is completely ignoring the naturalisation aspect and just looking at him in terms of goalkeeping ability. Is that right, Toka? Yeah, exactly. I mean, a lot have been said and written about um, his status as a Brazilian. So this is only about what, what his skill set as a goalkeeper and whether or not he's good enough for the national team. Okay, so hopefully we'll be able to check that out soon. So, the th I mean, the third goalkeeper, are we pretty much going Akinfeev, Ladigan, uh, Kritsiuk, yeah? Yeah, I'm good with that. Okay, that's 
that's actually quite a good lineup, really. I mean, Ladigan, you did mention he has been a bit dodgy at Zenit this season. So I'm going to move on to the defence now. Again, I keep highlighting it, but it just it just crops up all the time. So Toka, what's your defence here? Um, I have uh, Abjolin and Serkov for the left left back. Then I have Smolnikov and Kuzmin for the right back. Then the central defenders, I obviously have Pignashevis and Berezutski. And then I have um, Vladimir Granat from um, Spartak. And then because of Slutsky's love for, for Alexei Berezutski and because of his versatility, I've included, included him as the, as the fourth and last central defender in the squad. Okay, and Andrew, what about you? Um, I've I, I've gone for the Bedetsuskis and Ignashevich as my three main uh, central defenders. Um, I've only gone for seven defenders um, because I'm half looking at Tadasov possibly covering at centre back if needs be. So Bedetsuski, Alexey, and Vasily Ignashevich, uh, Smolnikov, and Zhirkov as my first choice fullbacks. Um, Nabiulin is is he him or Kuzmin for me? I I went for Kuzmin for experience, um, uh, and then Semenov as a as a as another centre just in case. Um, so that's my defence. Berzuski's a good shape. It's Kuzmin, Smolnikov, Zhirkov, and Semenov. What I would say is that neither of you have included uh, Dmitry Kambarov of Spartak, who started against Lithuania. Left back. Is there any particular reason for that? You know, I thought about it actually, but I figured Sherkov is my clear number one, and it seems like he's also Sluski's number one. So as a separate creature, I like the idea of having a younger guy taken to the base stage and, and allowing him to experience it and grow. And I think Nabulin showed in the Europa League games that he can also play on the big stage. So I wouldn't be worried if he had to play in the Europa League in the in the Euro. And what about Kambara for you, Andrew? Any particular reason for his exclusion? Well, I know it's going to sound silly, but really, numbers, if I'm being honest. Um, I would rather have an extra midfielder. Um, and um, right now I'm thinking about it, possibly another fullback instead of Semenyov. Um, so I would go with Nabulin as well, ahead of Kambara. And for the same reasons that Toka mentioned. Um, I think he offers something as well. It's not just for the experience as a young player. He really could actually be somebody who could offer more than just defence. He could, in a fluid formation, he could offer something in attack. Um, so, just for numbers and also because Nabulian, I think, offers more on the ball. OK, so we're going to move on to midfield now. I mean, Andrew, you've already mentioned Tarasov there. Do you want to go through the rest of your midfield? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, like I say, the wide positions is what concerned me the most. Um, but I've gone for uh, Igor Denisov, um, Chidokov and Lushikov as uh, central midfielders, uh, and Zagorev. Um, Tadasov I'm including as a more versatile player as well. So uh, those five, and Samedov, uh, Mamayev and Oleg Shatov are my midfielders. Okay, and what about you, Toka? I have um, Shirokov, Shakoev, Denisov, Mamayev, Ostoev, and uh, Tarasov for the central midfield. And then, of course, for the wings, I have uh, Samedov, Cherishev, and uh, Shatov. Okay, Andrew, did you pick Cherishev? I don't think I heard it. 
And I, I didn't I didn't pick him and purely on the basis of not having seen him directly enough this season. I mean on the on paper he's had his first good, really full good season. But um when I've seen him for the Spornaya, um I've I've been slightly underwhelmed. Um and perhaps it's unfair, but because of that I've not uh, I've not gone him. I would like to have him in, but I'm not sold yet. Now, me being me and just being a bit silly, I didn't actually write any of those down. So did I? Did I hear that nobody mentioned Glushakov? Uh, I did. So I did pick Glushakov. And Toki, did you put Glushakov? No, I didn't. Why not? I, I thought he was pretty. I for me against. I mean, I know it's Lithuania, but on Saturday, I thought he was man of the match. Yeah, I mean, sorry, sorry, you go. Oh yeah, I mean, I'm not. I'm not saying he's, he's, he isn't a good player or anything. I just preferred. I, Denisov and Tarasov to be the directly defensive midfielder, the holding midfielders, and then I pick guys like uh, Mamayev and Ostojev to be both the box-to-box players who can also offer a lot offensively. And I feel with Blushukov, I think you, if you play him next to Denisov, you risk having too little offensive firepower on the on the midfield. Yeah, and so I'm going to pick some more offensive, offensive players. I mean, they, that makes sense. Um, sorry, I, I understand. I understand where you're coming from with that. Um, I, I, I would take Glushkov purely as a means to rest Denisov if needs be, or if yeah, you know, things are getting a bit heated and they need somebody with just simply some energy. Um, but uh, for isn't me, that, isn't that so, what you put in Tarasov? Well. You see, this is, I'll, I'll come to, to that sort of more specifically in a moment. I, I have a specific game in mind for him. Um, what I'm thinking more of is, so Gorov this season has been has been used deeper than I would like to see him. I just think he has so much natural ability um, on the ball. It's good vision. I would like to see him further forward, but it's fitting it's fitting everybody in. Um, Shirokov and Zagorov can't both be attacking midfielders. So if Zagorov is then further back, that for me offers the attacking option of what could be a double pivot in the middle, in the centre. Um, so for that reason, I call Grushkov. I don't think he's ever going to start in the championships, but he could be an option. Yeah, it's quite interesting here. I've got the squad for the friendlies in front of me, and you've both actually gone quite differently in midfield terms than the squad that Slutsky picked for these friendlies. So it'll be interesting to see how that pans out over the summer. Now your forward lines. Toko, we'll start with you on that. Yeah, I have four guys. I have Kokorin and Smolov who can also operate on the wings. And then I have um, uh, Chuba and then, of course, Alexander Kurzakov to operate as the main front strikers. Okay, and what about you, Andrew? Uh, yeah, same. Exactly the same. Yeah, it pick, um, picks itself for uh, you, doesn't it? Yeah, basically. Makes itself for me. Yeah, I don't think we can really go much further on the strikers <laughs> on that front. I mean, K- Kershikov's, um is. I'm pleased for him that he has been brought back in by Slutsky, and I think he deserves one last chance because even if he's, he's he's never going to be the first choice now that Zubar is on such good form and you know is is full of confidence and scored loads in the in the qualifiers, but he he, he can. I, I hate the phrase, but he can do a job. Um, his presence alone will be useful, um, and he, he's got finishing. So, you know, late in the game, tired legs could be the man you'd want to um, be in the box. So, yeah, fit themselves. Really. 
Yeah, and, and I, as I wrote on the website a couple of weeks ago, I think he offers something that Smolov and, and Kokorin simply doesn't offer. He is a he is a pure front striker, while Smolov and Kokorin, they, they aren't as clinical in front of goal as he is, and I think they're better when playing on the wings, especially Smolov. So he is, together with Huber, the only real uh, front striker in the squad. Sorry, I thought you were going to come in on that, Andrew. Well, okay, so like we said, that forward line really does pick itself. Now, I'm not asking you to select 11s, but formation. What formation are you going with, Toka? Don't don't give me an 11, just give me a formation. Um, I'd go with a 4-2-3-1 or 4-3-3, whatever you would call it, with three, def- uh, three central midfielders and two wings. And then uh, a little striker up front. Okay, and what about you, Andrew? Yeah, I, I, I would go along with that. Um, I, I, like Toka suggests, I'm not really that sure what exactly you call it, but three central midfielders is the way forward for me because I think there are that's one of the strongest areas in the squad. Um, so, yeah, three central midfielders and um, yeah, two wingers, two up front. Okay, so there you have it, listeners. Those are the two recommended squads of our writers and be interesting to see which one comes out on top now bit of debate Andrew mentioned it fleetingly earlier about the game regarding Lithuania now I mean Andrew what would you sort of say about that Lithuania game why is it a pointless exercise well I mean everybody wants to have the the best challenge before the warm-ups and um, I I'm sort of lukewarm about Lithuania it I think the, the mistake was the, the stronger lineup or more experienced lineup was picked against Lithuania, um, when really what I think should have happened was that um, more of the fringe players should have been started against Lithuania. I mean, they, it doesn't prove anything a 3 0 win. The result is completely irrelevant. Um, but it, it, didn't, it wasn't used to the full extent that it could have been. Um, so um, I think it was pointless more in. Not necessarily the opposition, because there is a useful, weaker opposition, but it's just the team selection itself, I thought, made it rather pointless. Uh, Missed opportunity. And what about you, Toka? What's your attitude to the Lithuania friendly? I hate to say it, but I actually agree with Andrew. I think um, I think Slutsky made the game irrelevant. I don't think it was. You can, of course, you can say that they should have picked a stronger opponent, but the fact that they played with all the reserves and I mean, I think it was a wasted opportunity. We have two and a half months, three months until the until the Euro start. We have after the Lithuania game, they had three friendlies left, and then you decide to go with the reserves, and it didn't really prove anything. I don't think it taught us anything. It just seemed like a waste of time. I'd rather say he should have used the strongest possible lineup. Then he could have put put in one or two of the guys he wanted to see to see how they, they work together with the rest of the team. Just fielding. Nine reserves that just seem like a waste. Doesn't doesn't really help anyone. Yeah, I mean, I've got the program in front of me here from Saturday, and Vitaly Mutko, of course, the Russian sports minister and head of the Russian football union, his program notes sounded quite desperate. Now you have to forgive me here. I'm going to do a bit of an on-the-spot translation. He, he essentially says the Lithuanian team are a an excellent opponent for the first um, spa, if you like. Now, they didn't get to the, uh, the finals of the European Championships, but they are still an excellent team, and we were recommended them a long time ago. And then he actually goes on to say, oh, 
But even though we're playing this game, we are playing a lot of other high-profile teams. You mentioned uh, Croatia, Portugal, Czech Republic and Serbia. And then I think the best bit about this programme note is he then says, oh, they're not going to the European Championships, but they are competing in the Baltic Cup. So that is obviously some great... <laughs> that's oh, great that's calibre. Seriously, we're talking about a team who won 2-1 at home against San Marino. I mean, they can win the Baltic Cup all the times they want, but I just think that result says everything about the team. 2-1 mm. at home against San Marino, that's just awful. I'm so sorry yeah. to any Lithuanians listening. We are, we're not <laughs> laughing at your country. We're just saying that the Russian national team should have been playing a team of higher calibre, and I'm sure that you would admit that Lithuanian national team is not of the highest calibre. Now, but had, had they played the strongest team against Lithuania, at least they could see how they work together as a team. But again, with the, all the reserves, it just it was just strange. It was it was a strange match to us. Yeah, it was certainly a, a strange picture. I mean, I'll be honest. The first twenty minutes was pretty drab, and I I regretted going. But actually, it, it turned out to be quite good. Some nice goals, especially, especially that one from Golovin was pretty good. Now. Yeah, yeah. I think we've pretty much covered the national team for there, but on the on Slutsky's pre-match press conference against France, he was asked where Vladimir Putin would play if he was selected for the national team, and his answer was wherever he wanted. So we put out on Facebook and Twitter and social media and all that where you think Putin, the Russian president, of course, would play in the Russian national team. So Andrew, I know you had an answer for this, so I'm going to come to you first. <laughs> yeah, I thought this was a, a, a good question by the, the French journalist. I I said Hulk um, because he has good close control. He's not the most complicated, complex person, but he has that aura of invincibility about him, very powerful, and not many people are going to argue with him. Um, and it just reminded me of a quote that Christopher Walken once said. Um, he said, why do the New York Yankees always win? because of the pinstripes, because of the reputation that precedes them. Um, so, Putin strolls onto the pitch, not many people will go for a knee-high tackle, I would say. <laughs> so, Okay, what about you, Toko? What was your Putin position and the justification? I, <laughs> I have to admit, I focus more on his physical shape, and I know we have all, <laughs> we have so all seen the pictures of him being uh, uh, without a shirt fighting bears and all that stuff. But, I mean, he, he is, after all, 63 years old, so I think he needs to play in a position where he doesn't have to run as much as, as the other players. So, therefore, I've put him up front. I can definitely see him being a, a dangerous poach, poacher, just waiting for the chance in the penalty area. Okay. <laughs> I'll give you mine now. I've got a good defensive midfielder, no nonsense in the tackle, but the ability to spring surprises and play excellent passes in acute fashion, much like his diplomacy. Now, of course, like I said, we put this out on social media, so we've got a, a few responses here. We've got Matt, Porth, Matt Potter, sorry, who responded on Facebook. He said, an enforcer in midfield and a dirty one at that. Perfectly suited for that role. <laughs> and then we had, also on Facebook, we had Graham Donaldson, who said, a libero strutting out of the defence with the ball as his teammates part to let him through. And this is the, the best bit. 
perhaps with a circa 2002 Cameron's Cameroon style sleeveless shirt. <laughs> that is brilliant. Okay, and then <laughs> sorry, and then from Twitter we've got Pete D, who I know is a, a regular listener to the podcast, so I'm, I'm I'm sure he's glad he's got a reference. He's put a couple in actually. He's got he's put an old school halfback, but he's also put. A destroyer protecting that back four and distributing the ball out, intimidating opposition number nines. And then we had three suggestions from, uh, well, in Cyrillic it was Set Air Pair, so I'm just going to call him Set. So he said he had three suggestions. He had managing the tempo of the game, slows it down when it's needed and ups it when required, never panics, classic Putin. And then we've got <laughs> considering his physical size and strategic political nous. He isn't big or fast, but he plays with a brain. Perfect deep-lying playmaker. <laughs> We've all gone quite sort of quite defensive roles apart from you, Toka. I mean, perhaps he didn't take the physical shape into it. He probably doesn't have the uh, sort of the, the energy to get up and down. Now, you two, I didn't I didn't warn you about this prior to the podcast because I wanted to keep it secret, but I've opened it up a bit. Now, this will go out to the listeners as well. If you have any other famous person in Russian history that you'd like to put in a football team and justify it, then please do. Now, I've gone with Alexander Pushkin, who I think would make the perfect central attacking midfielder. I put a creative genius, capable of seeing things that nobody else does and then creating the perfect move or literature. Easily finds space, whether that be on paper or on the pitch, and fills it with his creativity and genius. The romantic in him is reminiscent of Roberto Baggio, Somebody who everybody loves, but in but in the end, it ends in tragedy. Excellent choice. I like it a lot. <laughs> so, if listeners or whoever has some suggestions, we'll keep the Putin one going because those are quite fun, but also anybody in Russian history and Russian famous people, I think that's quite amusing. Now, the thing with the Russian national team is they didn't pick any players from second place Rostov which is certainly a very strange one because they are the Russian Leicester City. So we're going to move on to talk about them a bit next. They're currently second in the league. They beat CSK in Moscow a couple of weeks back and they're now only two points off the table toppers. So, I mean, Andrew, do you want to sort of explain about Rostov to the listeners a bit? Well, yeah, I mean, you make the comparison to Leicester and it's, it's in the, the basic sense they are similar in that they're not uh, the most fashionable side. Um, and even last season, they were in the relegation playoff. Um, and it's, as far as I'm concerned, it's all because of Berdiev arriving. And then suddenly, they are, they're shooting up the table. They're a practical side. Um, they usually play a five-man defence. Um, they don't have any huge stars, but they have uh, a lot of players who have a long-term relationship with Berdev, um, some of whom he's brought in, some who are already there. Um, they don't score a lot, but they keep a very tight defence. Um, and um, I think a lot of neutrals would be uh, curious to see what would happen if they did somehow um, pick CSKA to the title. Um, but they have my vote, at least. And um, what about you, Tucker? What can you tell the listeners about Rostov? Uh, I think Andrew just explained pretty well what happened on the field, so I'll try to focus a bit on what happened off the field. I mean, unlike Leicester is the obvious comparison, but unlike Leicester, Rostov doesn't have a lot of money. In fact, they are 
quite poor and they have been punished for not paying their players a lot of times latest in um, in December where they received a re- registration ban and there was this the story about the cup match in the fall where the players uh, decided to boycott the, their away match in the cup simply because they hadn't been paid but yet somehow they have managed to um, to, keep, to keep the results on the field good and as, as, as you said they're second in the league now and it seems like they can keep going I don't know if they'll win the league but they'll definitely be up there I think yeah, I mean, just for the listeners, what sort of formation are we looking at and the particular style of play of Rostov? Well, I mean, Berdeev's um, captain uh, is Cesar Navas, he's brought in, um, and he plays usually um, between Ivan Novotsyovsev and Aaron Bastosh um, as three central defenders. Um, and then as a midfield three, he we usually goes with midfield three. Um, Christian Navarro is the only player to spend money on last summer um, at Ecuadorian International. Um, and even up front, I would say it's uh, Sardar Asmoon or Alexander Bukharov, perhaps, um, with Dmitry Polos offering a bit of pace and a bit of width. So essentially, 5-3-2, loosely. It depends on exactly 5-3-1-1, even. Um, but defence is the key. And Toko, Andrew's mentioned a few players there. Is there any, any other players you'd like to point out? I mean, one, one, one player I really think is like the personification of, of this Rostov side is, there, um, is the winger Karlochev. He's, I believe, 34 now, but still somehow he, he managed to keep going. He's made six assists this season, and he's just like the, the perfect machine on the wing going back and forth and yeah, simply keep on delivering the the, the final passes to, to give Rostov the goals they need. Yeah, I mean... And I, mean yeah, I mean, it's... Um, I, I'm just, just having a quick look at the, the league table and I'm, I'm not surprised that they've actually lost more games away from home than anybody else in the top half. Um, they've, uh, they've had... 10 clean sheets, 11 clean sheets, I think. So, effectively, half their games are clean sheets. Um, that, that tells the story. And they're getting the most out of the players, whether their players are older or, or not big names or don't have a huge amount of experience, some of them. Um, there is that good blend of experience and, and youth. Um, Berdeev is the man to get it out of them. I don't think any other manager would have done as well. Um, whether Vilesh was Slutsky or others, I think Bedo was the only person who could have moulded them as well as he has. And I think that's what is an, it has an interesting mix between players who have failed at the bigger clubs. We have guys like um, Polos, for example, who couldn't get his big, big breakthrough at, at um, I believe it was Lokomotiv who played ball before, and then Mogilevitz as well, who played for Senate. And then they have these guys like Jerokin and and uh, there was Novoselsev who come from smaller clubs and move up the ladder and then simply make rest of the, the place where they really can take the, the last step into the grade. So it's, it's an interesting mix between between them um, cheap young players and then players failing at bigger clubs. And for some reason, Berger really managed to get the best out of all of them and make them into something quite spectacular, at least this season. Yeah, it's really interesting what you say there, Toka, because... It, they are in contrast to Leicester, but if you look at Leicester, they are a very similar blend. You've got people there like 
Danny Simpson and people like that who and Danny Drinkwater, of course, who didn't really make it at the big clubs. And then you've got the likes of Jamie Vardy and Riyad Mahrez, of course, coming from the lower sides. And then that combination seems to really work there. But what I really wanted to focus on, I mean, Andrew mentioned him quite a lot there, is Berdiev. Um, is he similar to Ranieri in this case, in that he's a bit of a wily old fox? Well, I mean, I, I wouldn't compare him to Ranieri in style. Um, I would say um, Sam Allardyce, even. Um, although Sam Allardyce never had as much success in the league, he he did a similar job with a similar mix of players at Bolton about 10, 15 years ago. You know, he brought in Ivan Campo, Yuri Djorkov, um, and a, a whole host of other you know people who had been passed off as as irrelevant in the in the Premier League level. Um, very practical, um, calculating. Um, which points are possible, which points are worth expending energy on. Um, so Ranieri is, has a very energetic, um, high-pressing, um, high-intensity style, uh, counter-attacking style. So I suppose there are some similarities in how they play uh, with the ball, but without the ball, I wouldn't say they're very similar. Um, there's a much slower pace to Berdiev's game, more patience. I can see some comparisons in the fact that both Ranieri and Badiev has been somewhat regarded as, as done on the top level, and then they, they get to these smaller clubs and yet elevate them to the top of the league. I mean, uh, Ranieri was sacked by Greece after losing to the Faroe Islands. That was that was a big story in Denmark. And then, um, and then of course, Badiev was sacked at Rubin Kazan, and it looked like it was about it for him. But then, he got went to Rostov and now he's second in the league again. A bit similar to what he did for did with Rubin ten years ago. I was going to say, Andrew. I mean, people talk about Ranieri being harshly treated at Chelsea. Would you say the same with Berdyev at Rubin Kazan, and therefore it's quite a nice little revenge for him? Well, I I, I don't know the full story of exactly why he was sacked, but if it was purely on on the results on the pitch, performances on the pitch. I'd say it was a horrific way to treat him. Um, I, he doesn't look like the sort of character who would be a troublemaker himself. Um, I mean, his results speak for themselves. To make Rubin Kazan champions of Russia twice, to beat Barcelona in the new Camp, um, I mean, I, I don't think we'll see Tsiska or Zanit achieve that. I mean, the winning the league, yes, but results against European clubs like that. I, I think it's um, it probably will be revenge for him. The Russian Celtic. Um, well, yes, I mean he's uh, what he'll do after this season. I'm not sure. I'm I'm not entirely convinced he'll stick around after this season. Um, I I get the feeling he might call it a day on a high, but uh, who knows? Maybe he will carry. That would be perfect to be fair. Now, Toko, we've spent a lot of time talking about the defensive side of the Rostov game. Now. I do admit they have only scored 26 goals this season, but again, that's only six fewer than CSKA. Would you say their attack is underrated? It's, it's difficult to say if it's underrated because I think when you, when, when you call it underrated, you also imply that people see it as a, as a poor offensively uh, team, but I don't think that's, that's the case. I mean, they have, they have their style and it, it works very well for them. They're not the team who gets 60% possession and produce loads of chances, but they take the chances they get and they are clinical in front of goal. So 
I think they, I think they're doing well with what they have, and it works for them. So, yeah, you could say it's underrated, but at the same time, I'm not sure if that's actually the right word to use. And Andrew, what about you? What would you comment on that? <coughs> well, yeah, I think Toko explained it very well there because if you say underrated, you're by definition judging it, rating it, and if you compare it to other attacks, that's where I think the mistake comes in. You know, you can look at um, uh, Mel Garejo at Cuban scoring eight goals and um, Hulk banging goals and assists left, right, centre. There aren't really a huge, there isn't a concentration of goals um, in the strikers. Pollard, I believe, is top scorer with six, seven goals, I think, this season. Um, so the the players you would call out-and-out strikers were really Wukhorov and Asmu. Um, Pollard, I wouldn't describe as an out-and-out striker, um, but it works for them. So where the goals come from doesn't really matter to them. Um, so when you say attack, I would say the actual strikers probably aren't underrated because they're not outstanding strikers. Um, Asmu could, um, could improve with age. Uh, possibly Bukharov is not likely to have much of an Indian summer, but the goals themselves, where they come from, it works for them. So um, the source of the goals is not underrated. The strikers possibly are about where they should be. Yeah, Bukharov that you mentioned is quite interesting. Another player who sort of failed at the big clubs, I'm thinking about the Zenit particularly. Now, quick question, this will come to both of you, but I'm going to going to come to you first Toko. Now everyone's saying that if Leicester win the Premier League it'll be the greatest achievement pretty much in football history. People are getting a bit carried away. If Rostov were to win the Russian Premier League would that eclipse it? I'm thinking of the off-field troubles that you explained earlier. Oh yeah definitely because as, as many other people have said for Russian football the big difference between Leicester and Rostov is that Leicester have a lot of money. Leicester they're, they're, they're far from the richest team in England but they're still, because of the English TV deal and Premier League income, one of the richest teams in the world. And the players they sign out, even though we have all these fairy tale stories about James Vardy and, and stuff, they also have, as a name, Casper Michael, who is the best goalkeeper in Denmark and could easily play for a bigger team. So, and, and Rostov have and had a lot of things to fight with and a lot of other problems than just facing some. Some some good teams, so I think Rostov would be a much bigger sensation than uh, than a Leicester victory. And what about you, Andrew? Uh, yeah, I suppose overall I'd, I'd, I'd have to agree. Um, I mean, you, you look at the money that Leicester has spent, and it's, it is way, way over anything anybody else in Russia has spent in the last year. Um, but um, I, I still think Leicester's achievement is quite, quite incredible, given the the number of other teams who are even richer than they are. Um, I mean, Rostov's achievement in Russia would be the best, certainly the best story in Russia. Um, I'd say they're a comparable, but like Toka says, the off-field problems probably would shade it to Rostov if you were to compare. What I would say is that Leicester do come across stronger teams every week. They do have the stronger overall week-in, week-out challenge, but they have the backing to deal with it, I think was Tony's point. Um, so I, I know what you mean, Thomas. I mean, it's um, it, it, once you've got past 
Tesco, Sony, Sparto. Once you get down to the middle table downwards, um, it's uh, there aren't so many teams you would say are as strong as the you know mid-table Premier League team. I would say, um, but anyway, they've, I'm delighted for. Them. So the question. Think- go on, go on, Tesco. I think the difference between Rostov and then the top of the league, Senate and um, and CSK, of course, is bigger than the difference between Leicester and the, and the top of the, the English Premier League. When I look at, at Leicester's starting lineup for the, for the last game, I can see they have a couple of former Christian Fuchs has played German national team games. Kante has played for France. They have, as you said earlier, Drinkwater and Bardi has played for England. Those are only recent call-ups. They have a lot of players who played on the on the national teams, Italy and Amati as well. And and Rostov's players are simply not at that on that level. So I think the difference between Rostov and the top is is bigger than the difference between Leicester and the top in Premier League. So the question is, can they sustain it, Andrew? Nine games to go, two points off. Can they do it? Uh, heart says yes, head says no. Um, I think. I think they will fall just short. I think they'll definitely qualify for Europe. I don't think that's in question. Champions League? Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm second or third. I can't call it. I think I will say yes. I think they will just about hang on simply because they have the most practical, effective manager um, at the helm. Um, they have two or three difficult fixtures coming up in the next few weeks at Sparta um, on Saturday. Um I mean, keeping out, keeping a clean sheet against Spartan would be a good, a good achievement in my book. So, um, I think they will finish second. I was going to ask you to get off the fence, but then you jumped off majestically and to one side, <laughs> so it was fine. And Toka, do you think they could get the league? You know, I hate you asking me this question because before we started the spring season, I said they wouldn't even qualify for Europe. But I mean, they have really impressed me in these first three games. Maybe not so much in the weekend. But especially the victory against Amka. So, no, I don't think they'll win the league, but I think they'll finish in on the European spots. If, if they are to win the league, it, it takes either CSK or one of the other teams. It takes CSK to to to, to collapse somehow, to, to deliver some really poor and surprisingly poor results. Well, just to contradict both of you, I'm going to say that they can do it. Come on, Rostov. They're going to do it. They're going to do it. Okay, so we're going to move on to the final section now. Now, it's big news really around Europe that AVB, Andre Biash-Boash, is leaving Zenit at the end of this season. Now, so many names have been pumped around to touting out for the Zenit job. Now, Andrew, what sort of character needs to come in to take that Zenit job and what do they expect there? Well, I think they, I think the the manager will have to be somebody who's quite humble. Will have to realise their places, um, deliver results in the way that is expected. Um, by that I mean, Willis Boris is known for being extremely opinionated, and he may not always be wrong, but he his frustrations at the foreigners' rule, um, for example. I'm not saying he's wrong to disagree with it, but. You know, he's he had to he has to realise everybody also has to deal with it. There are other teams who don't have you know mega stars, but still have plenty of foreigners who are important to them. Um, I even asked him a question early in the season 
um, at the uh, Ural Zanit game back in August. Um, I asked him if he felt under pressure to um, perform in an entertaining style um, after he was criticised by Boris Chuklov, I believe it was, um, and decided having a go at me <laughs> right in front of everybody in the press conference. What did he say? Um, it was clearly a touchy subject. What did he say if it, um, if it wasn't too colourful? Well, he said um, his words were pretty much exactly, well, it's um, some idiots referring to Chuklov. Some idiots um, say things that they don't understand when they are perhaps embarrassed at their lack of success. And then there are idiots like you who give them a platform. Um, I mean, he could possibly grammatically have been using you plural about the media in general, but he was looking me in the eye with a fairly aggressive look on his face. So um, I I think the, the man who comes in to replace him will have to have a temperament that can sort of suck it in and accept that they have to adapt quickly. Um, so, I mean, I've seen rumours of Manuel Pellegrini being touted around, um, and I think his calmness could fit the bill. Um, but uh, his cultural background um, may be a gap that is too far to cross, um, but it's certainly one part of his character could fit the bill, I'd say. Who was it that wrote The Idiot? The, the famous Russian? It was Dostoevsky. Uh, Boris Chukov. He, I think he won the league with Zenit in the 80s once. Um, uh, he's rather rotund now. Um, but, uh, I was, talking, I was talking about the famous Russian novel, Idiot, is by Fyodor Dostoevsky. <laughs> so from now on, Andrew, I'm going to call you Fyodor <laughs> after Andrej Ashbaz <laughs> called you an idiot. I, I'm delighted. That links in with my favourite Russian striker, Smolov, so I'm happy. Okay, we're going to call you Fyodor from now on. And Toka, <laughs> what, what would you say about the incoming Zenit manager? I think a, a lot has been said about whether or not he should be foreign or he should be Russian. I think the most important thing is that Zenit finds someone who can think long-term. Of course, it's important that Sinnott win the league, and he needs to deliver the good results almost from day one. But at this time, they have, now they've had Villas Boas for two years, and I think they need to to try to plan ahead for a change. You need to find someone who could possibly be at the club for five years, who can really start to rebuild the team so they can also be competitive on the European stage, because you can see, okay, Sinnott went to the uh, round of 16 in the Champions League, they went to the qualifiers in the Europa League last season. It wasn't actually bad, but they need someone who can take it up, a step up, and I think the only way to do that is to have some long-term thinking and really try to get a team going that has played together for years. And I think, yeah, they need to find someone who's in it for the long run. And then, as Andrew said, of course, they need to find someone who maybe not understands Russia, but at least is ready to deal with the problems and doesn't create as many enemies as Boas did. You say about the long term, I mean, what I would say is that, I mean, I don't want to slam him too much, but Villas-Boas was called in to do long-term jobs at Chelsea, Tottenham and Zenit and has, has left all of them prematurely. Um, but with the sort of the project thing you mentioned, wasn't that the job of even Spalletti before him and now Villas-Boas and this, this project building has just gone wrong? It, it has, it, it definitely has, and you can you can see now they are changing the coach again. So I think maybe they should have given Villas Boas a longer a longer contract. But if he already decided to leave last season, it probably wouldn't have helped anyway. 
perhaps they need to do the interviews better. They need to to find to realize that the coach can get he he shouldn't just go to Senate and Russia for the big table, uh, but also for actually wanting to build a sustainable and European a major club because they have the the, the foundation is is ready. They just need to build on it. So what I'm going to say though is sort of having read around a bit, I know that they will not employ a Russian. They want a European who can preferably speak English. That's because actually a lot of the training sessions are done in English because most of the foreigners there speak English. And they want a continental manager to deal with the international nature of the squad and make of that what you will. And you mentioned Pellegrini. Now, I spoke to Stuart Brennan of Manchester Evening News a couple of weeks back about this. And he convinced me that Pellegrini will not be going to Russia. Now, there have, there have been talks of Zenit talking to his agent, but I, I'm pretty sure there have actually been talks, but an, an offer has not been made at this point, and I really can't see Pellegrini going. I think he'd rather go back to Spain or stay in England, and why would he want to leave his comfort zone of Western Europe at 62 to start a life in Russia? So, with that in mind, now that I've ruined your Pellegrini one, Andrew, can you give me a couple of other names? <laughs> Well, um, you've also ruined my second suggestion, which was um, possibly Sergei Semak, just yeah. simply for continuity. Um, I'm not entirely surprised that they've, um, they've said they would prefer a European name, because it, it's clear that Europe is their priority, the Champions League success is their priority. Um, I, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I would even, I would have considered... Um, maybe even Rafa Benitez. Um, I know his contract at Newcastle, I believe, is only till the end of the season. Um, I may be mistaken there. Um, but no, I'm pretty he's sure it's till the end of the season, of, Andrew. Yeah. He's a single-minded person who could do, who could cope with a change of of, um, of culture, and he speaks his English, his English is fluent. Um, and possibly um, won the Champions League, of course. Yeah, yeah, he's got his pedigree in Europe. He's been to, uh, well, he's been in Italy, he's been in England, he's been in Spain. Um, I, I think Benitez would be a, uh, probably a good sign. That is I a think. great chance for that. And what about you, Toker? Are there, I mean, before you give me a, a proper name, are there any Danish coaches from left field that could come into this? <laughs> that should be Michael Laudrup, perhaps. But given his past at Spartak and his not so good results lately, I doubt that would be. That will be the case. And what about what about but, a proper name? Yeah, I mean, I really like what uh, Dutch coaches has done in Russia. We had um, Advocat for Senate, and we had Gus uh, Hitting for the Dutch uh, for the Russian national team. So I was thinking, what about Ronald Koeman, for example? He has done pretty well both in the, in Holland and now with Southampton. And while it's it, it is a great challenge to play in the Premier League, I think Senate would be a step up, and you could play. European matches and everything, and I, I think that would be that could be interesting to watch. Yeah, I, I like that suggestion of Coleman actually, because I mean, again, going back to the whole idea of building a long-term future, Southampton um, is a is a club who who they really really do do their homework. They have a they have a really futuristic. Um, media centre where they build up databases of all possible managers before they've even asked, been asked to look for shortlists and you know they really analyse players' characters and are they going to fit in not just um, uh, tactically but mentally character-wise um, and if Coleman was a man chosen to 
to run that sort of project, he should be a prime candidate for Zoni 2. I actually really like that suggestion. So okay. I'd, I'd go along with that too. Personally, I, I don't think you go. I think there are probably bigger moves for him and he'd probably prefer to stay in England. I'm just putting that out there. But what I would say is, are you disappointed by the club ruling out a Russian manager? I mean, we could go into the whole debate of developing Russian coaches, but is that a, a step in the wrong direction for you, Toko? I think, yeah, I don't think they should rule out Russian managers categorically. But I think when you look at the field of Russian managers at the moment, I understand why they did it, because I don't really see any Russian coaches who could who could take over Senate at the moment and be successful, so I understand why they did it. And what but about I, just hope, I hope they don't stay with that philosophy if we see a Russian manager who could be successful in the future. And what about you, Andrew, on that? Well, yeah, I, I, I agree with what Oak says exactly. It's ruling it out categorically by simply naming the nationality you're not going to have is defeating the entire object of choosing a, a man capable of leading the club. If he just happens to be Russian, what difference does it make? Um, but, you know, we've seen in the past Sanito a club that are very firmly proud of their identity and some fan groups have been accused of taking it too far, but the point is the identity is very important to them. So, um, I, I do think they should be careful of just simply saying the nationality is the deciding factor. It really should be, I think, at least being able to understand what is necessary and accept the responsibility. Um, so I think it's I think it's the wrong thing to do to rule out purely on nationality. Um, whether the right candidate comes along, I don't know, but um, uh, I yeah I say it's not the right thing to do. And Toka, there was a bit of press in early March that AVB could actually stay. Do you think there's any chance of that? No, I think it was it was only senior CEO who said that he wouldn't rule it out. I don't think there's any chance AVB will will stay in Senate. He seems he seems pretty determined to leave, and he has had his mind on that for a while now. And to be fair, I think he has he soon he has soon achieved what he, what he can achieve in in Russia. So. I think he'll move on to, to new challenges. Yeah, he's got family back in Portugal he's quite keen to get back to. Now, gents, I think that pretty much closes off this Russian Football News podcast. So, again, as we always do on every show, I'm going to start with you, Andrew. Just um, put it, put your advertise yourself as your, on your Twitter there. Um, yeah, my Twitter handle is Andrew M-I-J Flint. Okay, and Toko, you? My Twitter is Toko uh, Thielade. It's Toka, T-O-K-E, and then T-H-E-I-L-A-D-E. OK, that's perfect. So I'd just like to once again thank the two guests. That's Andrew Flint and Toka Thiele. Thank you, gents, and we'll hopefully congregate again soon. Who's doing the dishes there? <laughs> I can hear some plates cracking. That's my wife. <laughs> anyway, so to all the listeners, do keep checking out the Russian Football News website. That's russianfootballnews.com. Look for us on Facebook, just search Russian Football News at Russ Football News. R-U-S Football News is the Twitter handle. Keep looking at the website, like I said. Do subscribe to this podcast. You can subscribe on SoundCloud and on iTunes, I'm pretty sure. Uh, you can also just look on the website and it's updated on there all the time. So again, thanks to Andrew and Toka for being my 
wonderful guests on this podcast, and we'll see everybody next time. Goodbye. <laughs>